you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua 10, starting in verse 16. Uh, it's on page 186 in your pew Bibles in front of you if you're using those. Joshua 10, verses 16. And we are going to go through the end of the book. So uh, today we're going to be finishing our series in the book of Joshua. While um, I'm going to give just some, some brief comments on the land allotments uh, in chapters 13 through 24, uh, the bulk of our focus this morning is going to be in chapter 10, verse 16 through chapter 12, 24. You may have won the battle, but you have not won the war. Uh, it's a line we commonly here uttered in movies and sometimes at sporting events. But we don't often hear the opposite of that said. Uh, you've won the war, but there's still more battle to be fought. On June 6, 1944, that's exactly what happened. Uh, on a day now known as D-Day, the Allied forces took the beach at Normandy, effectively ending the war, uh, World War II. Uh, though there were still battles to be fought, the war had been won. Uh, well, in this morning's text, we see a similar situation happening. Uh, the Lord has already promised victory to Israel uh, as they obey his commands. Uh, the conquest of the land of Canaan becomes a reality as they do that. Uh, even though there are, are still battles to be fought, the war is effectively won. Uh, obedience to God leads to rest. Obedience to God leads to rest. That's the main point I, I want us to see this morning, specifically in chapters 10 through 12. So uh, if you're in your Bibles, go ahead and, and follow along with me uh, in, in chapter 10, starting in verse 16. Um, we're not going to read through this, but I'm going to kind of give highlights and snapshots of what's going on here. So if you recall from the last two weeks, uh, Israel makes a covenant with Gibeon uh, without seeking the Lord. And then uh, the Lord comes to their rescue when five kings, we learned last week, kind of wage war uh, on Gibeon. So uh, these five incredibly powerful kings go to battle with Gibeon and, and the Israelites, who they, uh, we learned last week, have God fighting for them. Um, and the Israelites, with God, swoop in to save the day. God humbles the Israelites by winning the battle for them uh, with hailstones, and then God listens to the prayer of Joshua. And that brings us to our current place in the text, chapter 10, verse 16. Those same five big bad kings who attacked Gibeon head for the hills, uh, they get out of there, and they find themselves hiding in a cave in this place called Makadah, which is about 40 miles southwest of Gibeon, uh, and back on their own home turf, so to speak. So if Gibeon were Aptos, uh, these guys take off and hide in a cave somewhere approximately near Bixby Canyon Bridge, but kind of out in the ocean somewhere further west. Uh, and this is where the battle has since moved. Uh, they're sitting there in the cave that they've hightailed it and run, and they think they're safe. 
Then uh, some of God's people find them and they relay information to Joshua, who's already close by. But uh, instead of just wiping them out right there, Joshua does something interesting in the text. He tells the people to, to kind of roll stones over the mouth of this cave where they're hiding, and then he tells them to keep pursuing the enemy. Um, they do it. They, they continue on to win another battle. Uh, and then Joshua gets all the people, after they've won the next battle, he gathers them all around the mouth of that cave. Uh, where these five kings are kind of cowering, where they've rolled the stone uh, over the mouth. So look with me in verse 22. That's kind of the setting that's going on, starting in verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. Now, it's easy for us to to read passages like this and immediately think, whew, (laughs) That's pretty brutal and ruthless, right? Why would, would Joshua do that? His men could have killed these kings as soon as they found them in the cave. Why would Joshua wait to kill them and then do it in front of all of the, the people of Israel? Well, I don't think this is just a ruthless act of brutality. I don't think that this is Joshua just flexing his muscles in an attempt to be macho or barbaric. Both Joshua and the author of this book of Joshua wanted to send a specific message to the Israelites and to us this morning. Uh, The killing of these five kings was an enacted parable. Uh, It it was a visual aid meant to teach us something about God. Uh, I want us to quickly take a look at a passage all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Um, First book of the Bible, third chapter, Genesis 3. Uh, We're going to do just kind of a a quick biblical theology lesson here to help us kind of catch the meaning behind the story uh, of these five kings and their execution. So if you're not familiar with the biblical storyline, that's okay. We're going to walk through it. Uh, God creates everything um, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He creates male and female in his own image, and he creates them perfect to be in relationship with him. He puts or places, or the word is rests, them in the garden, and he gives them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want you guys to remember that word rests. It's going to be important later on in today's message in the book of Joshua. So there Adam and Eve are in the garden, 
tasked with ruling over the earth and at perfect rest or or peace with God. But in Genesis chapter 3, we know that, that Satan enters the scene as a serpent and he tempts Adam and Eve to take and to eat the fruit. They disobey God and sin enters the world through man. God, in his righteous and just judgment, banishes Adam and Eve from the garden. And he gives them several things that are going to forever be different because of their sin. Uh, The ground is going to be cursed. Childbearing will be painful. And on and on down the list as we read in Genesis 3. Uh, It's actually a pretty depressing scene when you realize the weight of it, um, which still affects every single one of us today. But in the midst of all of this, there's a silver lining. Uh, Amidst all of the curses, there's a promise. Genesis 3, 15, uh, which is known as the first gospel, uh, is God's proclamation against Satan, uh, that he will be crushed under the heel of one of Eve's descendants or seeds. So there's a promise in Genesis 3.15. God says, okay, there's all of these curses that happen, but one day one of Eve's children on down the line is going to crush the head of Satan under his foot. So Genesis 3.15 says this. Here's the promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman. So he's speaking, God's speaking to Satan here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and And her offspring. He, so speaking of the offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God makes this promise of hope to his people amidst absolute depression. Satan, the enemy of God, will one day be crushed under the foot of that descendant who we know to be Christ. Being placed under the the foot of someone is a symbol of victory and absolute submission under authority. We see David using this imagery in Psalm 18, verse 37 through 38. So this is the same song that he sung in 2 Samuel 22. Uh, In Psalm 110, which, uh, a side note, this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament because it's about the Messiah. And it says this in verse 1, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 8, verse 6. Again, speaking about Christ, it says this. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, This imagery is carried into the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians 15, Verses 25 through 27, Paul speaks about Christ, and he says this. He says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Romans 16, verse 9 through 20 says this. It says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So do you see the hope that's found in these promises? When Christ died on the cross for our sin, he defeated once and for all sin and Satan and death. He crushed them under his feet. For those who have repented and believed in Christ for salvation, the truth is this. The war is over. You're justified. You're made right before God. There's still battles that you're going to face in the Christian life, but the war's over. Think about that. Christ has crushed those enemies under his feet by dying on the cross. Now, take all of that and bring it back to our text in Joshua. Joshua patiently waits for God's people to win this battle. He calls them around the caves at Makedah, and then look what happens. Chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. Verse 25. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So God made a promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which we know he fulfilled in Christ. God made another promise to Joshua and to his people in Joshua chapter 1. Let's look back and remember that promise. Joshua 1, verses 5 through 9. God told them, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So the same promises that God made to Moses and then to Joshua, Joshua turns and delivers to the people. Remember what we learned last week. This this isn't a a new word. This isn't a a new truth or a new promise from God. This is the old word of God being remembered and applied. In fact, this faithful promise of God goes back even further than Joshua chapter 1. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 3. Deuteronomy 3 verses 21 and 22 says, and I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms in which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Moses repeats this promise to Joshua again in Deuteronomy 31, verses 6 through 8. Look at this. Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, 
For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So Joshua, here in our text, with the enemies visibly under their feet, he quotes the promises of God. And then he tells them, hey, this is what God is like. This is what he's already done for us in the land. The Lord God has been and will be faithful to his people. The war is over before the battle even begins. Friends, just as Joshua does this enacted parable in front of all of Israel to encourage them in the Lord's faithfulness to them, just as he does that enacted parable, we get to do the same each week when we take the Lord's Supper. Each time we take the Lord's Supper together as a church, it's an enacted parable of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Each time we we look upon the bread and the cup, we're drawn to remember Christ's body and blood, which was sacrificed for us, thus crushing our enemies under the feet of Jesus. So I want to encourage us not just to go through the motions each time we take the supper. Take time to consider the parable that's being enacted in front of us. That should encourage us, just like this sign of victory encouraged the Israelites in Joshua 10. The Lord God has already given our enemies into our hands. Look what what happens after this. Joshua and the people of God, they pick up and they move. Inspired by what they know to be true, they move forward in obedience. And God surprise, surprise, continues to be faithful. They attack Libna, verse 30. It says, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. They attack Lachish, verse 32. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. Then look with me at verses 40 through 43. Joshua 10, verses 40 through 43. So Joshua struck the whole land the hill country and the Negeb, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. This is kind of a a summary statement of the entire southern conquest. But I want to point out two things here that that I don't want us to miss in this text. First, notice in verse 40, the reason for, for doing what they're doing. Verse 40, he left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. They're obeying God here. 
And look what happens in verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. They only have success because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. While we know that there's still battles to be fought, Joshua has just let us know that the war is over. Christian, have confidence in this truth. At the moment you repented and believed in Christ for salvation, you were justified and made right before God. The war was over. But, again, know that there are still battles to be fought. The moment you were saved, God didn't take you from this earth straight to heaven, right? He didn't. No, you were left on this earth because there's still battles to be fought. There's still sanctification or growth that needs to happen in your life and in my life. God still wants to use you for his glory and as his instruments here on earth. As you're obedient to him and as you trust, his promises of faithfulness. And as I said earlier, the the story doesn't stop there with Joshua and the kings at the cave, right? The people of God see this truth, they have confidence in it, and then they press on and they move forward in obedience to God, all the way through chapter 11. Once again, several kings in Canaan, they join force and they do battle with Israel. Read with me chapter 11, verse 4 through 5. Joshua 11, 4 through 5. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. In number, like the sand that is on the seashore, This is a huge, huge army that they're about to go up against. There's this guy named Josephus. He's a a Jewish historian. And he records the combined forces of the Canaanites numbered 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 cavalry, and up to 20,000 chariots. Think about that. If, If these numbers are even in the ballpark, This is one of the largest battles that Joshua ever fought. And look what happens in verses 6 through 9. Joshua 11, 6 through 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mizrafath Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpeh. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So uh, the Lord tells them to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. And they do it. They obey fully and completely, without hesitation. Now, can can we once again admit that this command of God doesn't make much sense? 
Just like the command to be circumcised in enemy territory back in in chapter 5, this command isn't logical at all. Any good military commander who knows that there's more battles to be won ahead would gladly take all of those chariots and horses to be used on down the road. But Joshua and the Israelites obey. They hamstring the horses, rendering them ineffective, and then they burn the chariots. What's God trying to teach them and us? I think he's trying to teach them and us to trust him and him alone. I think about Psalm 20 here. Psalm 20, verses 7 through 8. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Do you see that? They aren't supposed to trust in military might or or things that can collapse and fall. The Lord God wants them and us to trust him. And they, they display that trust through obedience. Friends, I wonder if you have something going on in your life right now that you're having trouble being obedient to God in. Maybe something that doesn't make much financial sense or career sense or whatever. If the Lord has called you clearly from his word to be obedient, trust him and show that you trust him through obedience. Even when that obedience costs you something that appears to be great in the eyes of the world. This pattern of obedience continues on and on and on and on for Joshua and the people. Look at the end of verse 12. Joshua strikes these cities just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Then again, in verse 15 of chapter 11, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This is continual obedience. And look what it leads to in verse 23, 11:23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. The Lord speaks to Moses who delivers the faithful word of God to Joshua. Joshua obeys what the Lord commands, and it leads to what? Rest. Again, to to think from a big picture view of the Bible as a whole, rest is what the people of God have been looking for since Genesis 3.15. Prior to the fall of man, Adam was tasked with working and keeping the land, subduing and conquering. These are the exact things he failed to do when the serpent entered the garden, right? He doesn't obey God. He doesn't subdue Satan. He loses the rest or the peace that he once had with God. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, the ground was cursed. Adam would have to toil all the days of his life. Genesis 3, 17b through 19 says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of that, now the land isn't at rest. Adam and Eve are not at rest, and they're definitely not at peace with God. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden and God's presence. But there's still hope, right? This cycle goes all the way through the Old Testament. I would encourage you to pay attention to this cycle as you read through the Old Testament. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Sin, judgment, hope. Over and over and over and over again. That's the story of the Old Testament. Each time a character is introduced to the story, from Genesis forward, you you get excited and you think, this might be the promised seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15. This might be the one who's going to bring hope and rest. Then one after another, they disobey and disappoint. They sin. There's judgment. But God still gives them hope of rest through this promised seed. We see this in Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, a son, an offspring, a seed. Is this the one? And they called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Noah Sounds like the Hebrew word nua, meaning rest. They thought he might be the one who would bring rest. We know how the story goes, right? Ultimately, Noah doesn't obey fully. He doesn't bring rest. We know that when Israel was in the desert under the leadership of Moses, they didn't obey either. Psalm 95, 8 through 11 Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What I want us to see in this passage in Joshua is that obedience to God leads to rest. They obey God, and the land is at rest from war. That's the good news. Now, let me tell you the bad news. None of us, not one of us, is capable of the complete amount of obedience that leads to rest. Romans chapter 3 tells us that none is righteous. No, not one and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look with me, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 4. A good chunk of chapters 3 and 4 deal with this idea of entering God's rest. And this is what Hebrews 4, 1 through 3 says. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then down in verses 8 through 11, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. God's rest can only be entered by perfect obedience. That's what Hebrews 4 is saying. And as we said before, none of us meet that standard. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. And the point that Hebrews is trying to make for us. The promise of entering his rest still stands. But it's not based on our obedience. Only one man in all of history lived a perfectly obedient life. And that man was Jesus Christ. Okay. Great for Jesus, Drew. Sounds like he gets to enter God's rest. Why is that good news for me? You ready? Here it is. The amazing truth is that when we turn from our sin and trust in that Jesus, his obedience, his righteousness, his perfectly lived life, it's credited to us. The fancy theological word for this is imputation. Christ lives perfectly. You get to put on his righteousness. You put on his righteousness. You enter God's rest. Isn't that amazing? Faith in Christ leads to rest and peace with God. As a precursor to that, we see the people of God here in Joshua obeying God's commands, thus showing that they have faith or trust in God. And that trust, displayed through obedience, leads to rest. If you haven't put your faith in Christ and haven't experienced faith with God, peace with God, I would say to you right now what Hebrews says. The promise of entering that rest still stands. Repent and believe in Christ. It's the only hope of your salvation. It's your only hope of rest and peace with God. To the Christian, I say this. Grasp hold of that truth. But realize that it's Christ's righteousness that has saved you. Even the good works that you do today are because of that, that Christ is in you. So be thankful for that, but be humbled by that. Praise God for that. I want to make one quick observation on chapter 12. All of this has happened with the five kings and them winning these battles. This whole chapter 12 is a list of kings that were defeated by the Israelites. Verses one through six are all of the kings defeated by Moses before they went into the land. And then verses seven through 24 are all of the kings defeated by Joshua in the land. And it runs almost like a checklist. Uh, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. 
the king of Jerusalem, one, the king of Hebron, one, on and on down the list, 31 of them in all. Now, why would a, a whole chapter of God's word be dedicated to listing these kings? Even further, how does this chapter, chapter 12 of Joshua, how does it stand to the 2 Timothy 3 test, right? So how is this chapter, according to 2 Timothy 3, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work? How does it meet that, that test? What I, I want us to see is that this is a specific record of God's faithfulness to his people. Remember that it's not the military might of, of Moses or, or Joshua or the people of Israel that defeated these kings here in chapter 12. It was the Lord who was fighting for them. This whole chapter is a detailed record of God's faithfulness. And it's there for the people to remember that faithfulness, which spans throughout the generations. In fact, the next several chapters of Joshua do the same thing, but not with kings, but with all of these land allotments, reminding us of who got which land parcel in fulfillment of God's promise to them. I've already kind of given you a head start on this today. Uh, we've talked about justification or being made right with God, or imputation, or God's righteousness being credited to our account. Those are two different ways that as we look back at the word of God, just like the people of Israel, that we're reminded that God's been faithful to us. I want to challenge you today to go home and make a list of the many ways that God has been faithful to you, or to others around you through the years. My guess is that as the Israelites read this list of kings in chapter 12, or as they saw the numerous piles of rocks around them, like the one in front of the cave at Makadah, that they remembered God's faithfulness and that it led to thankfulness and to praise. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would remember God's faithfulness that we would strive for obedience to his commands in light of his faithfulness to us, and that we would praise him for what he's done. Now, after all of the land allotments in chapters 13 through 21, I want us to see something amazing. Most of the time, the thesis statement goes at the beginning of a book, right? Or at least in the first couple paragraphs of a book. But I believe that these verses kind of summarize the entire book of Joshua and explain to us what God's trying to teach us. So, what's the book of Joshua all about? Look with me in Joshua 21, verses 43 through 45. So we've just got this long list of kings, this long, many-chaptered list of land allotments. Chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And here we go, verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. 
all came to pass. None of God's good promises failed. All came to pass. That's what this whole book is about. Santa Cruz Baptist Church. That's still true today. There are no falling words in this book. The Bible, the word of God, not one. You can trust God. You can trust his never failing word. Whether you're fighting Canaanites or anxiety, you can trust God and his word. Whether you're crossing the Jordan River or the teenage years with your kids, you can trust God and his word. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God's promises never fail. You can trust him. Even the land allotments, as boring as they might be to us reading them, even those are screaming this truth. Is God a faithful God? Yeah, look at his track record. He promised the land, and he came through. To those who, who repent and believe, he promises heaven. He promises eternal life and full, whole relationship with him forever. Will he come through on that promise? Yes. Look at his track record. He always comes through, every time. This is a note that, that Joshua continues to hit until his dying day. In fact, Joshua 23, verse 14, some of Joshua's last dying words are, are these. Joshua 23, 14, he says, And now I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Not one of God's promises have failed. And don't forget what Paul says in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Each promise fulfilled, whether it be in Joshua or anywhere else in the Old Testament, each promise fulfilled points to Jesus. And then look what he says in Joshua 24, verses 12 to 13. After giving this brief history of the conquering of the land, he says, It was not by your sword or by your bow. It gave you, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. This is God speaking to his people. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, isn't this the, the portrait of the gospel of grace? It's all God's work and not our own that gets God's people into God's place under God's rule. We don't go to heaven based on our own work, but in trusting in the work of Christ. It's not by your sword or by your bow. It's not the labor of your hands. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's the ultimate promise that never fails. Finally, in the next couple of verses, 
Joshua left the people of God and us this morning with a final charge. He says this, Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. He says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Every single one of us has this decision to make. Who will we serve? Who will be our God? The God of the Bible or some lesser God? The faithful God who fights for his people or the God of money, the God of entertainment, the God of status? Who or what gets primary placement in your heart and in your time and in your thoughts? That's a good indicator of who or what your God is. Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and specifically for this book of Joshua. We thank you for the way that it has pointed us to Christ. We thank you for the reminder that we have of who your son is and what he's done for us. We thank you for the reminder that we have of your faithfulness to us throughout the ages. Lord, you don't leave us in the dark wondering if, if you're going to come through. But Lord, we've seen you time and time and time and time again make promises and keep them both in your word and through our own experience. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.